Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. I'm not sure. What about all that business with the coroner's report? Oh, yeah, no, I haven't heard it. I'm sure there was some complication to tell us. That's weird. Ladies and gentlemen of the press, thank you for joining me here today. As president of Stanford University, I was, of course, as shocked as anyone when I first heard that Jane Stanford had died. As a matter of fact, I boarded the very next boat to Hawaii. Dr. Jordan, is it true that she was poisoned? I'm sure you've all heard the rumors about Mrs. Stanford's death. I am here to tell you that these rumors are lies spread by the subpar fraudulent Hawaiian doctors who failed to save her. Come on, heart failure? Quiet, please! Upon further investigation, the highly reputable Dr. Ernest Coniston Waterhouse found that Mrs. Stanford died of simple heart failure. But sir, what about the coroner's report? They disclosed that the autopsy showed decisive signs of strychnine poisoning. Quiet! It was heart failure. Who are you going to believe? A group of savage doctors or the president of Stanford University? This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unsolved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. This is our final episode on Jane Stanford, founder of Stanford University. Last week, we examined the events leading up to her suspicious death. This week, we'll uncover who might have been responsible. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Seventy-six-year-old Jane Stanford had spent her life helping people. She was co-founder of Stanford University, a staunch advocate for women's education and a loving mother. But after decades of traveling the world and living in the spotlight, she still managed to make some enemies. Most notably, Stanford President David Starr Jordan. And on February 28, 1905, one of her enemies was responsible for her death. Extra, extra! Jane Stanford dead in Honolulu. Chemists report presence of strychnine present. Read all about it. That wasn't the only story, though. According to Stanford University President David Starr Jordan, Mrs. Stanford wasn't murdered at all. She died of heart failure. The claim that she was killed by anything other than natural causes was a lie, spread by subpar doctors in Hawaii. Dr. Jordan was wrong. In fact, the Hawaiian doctor's investigation was top-notch and thorough. Dr. Francis Howard Humphreys and his associate, Dr. Harry Murray, took every precaution to keep the scene intact. 
they made sure no one else touched the body as soon as they arrived on the scene. They collected bodily fluids, bagged samples of the poison drink that killed her, and took down detailed reports of how Jane Stanford's body had reacted. After an autopsy, they held a full three-day coroner's inquiry in front of a jury of their peers. Dr. Humphreys testified at the hearing where he described his findings. When we arrived, her jaw had clenched so tight she could barely make out words. It wasn't long before her body was taken over by titanic spasms and her body went rigid. Her legs splayed out, her feet turned inwards, her hands gripped tightly into fists holding nothing. Eventually, she stopped breathing. It was gruesome, and clearly the act of poison. It only took the jury two minutes to rule that Jane Stanford had been killed by strychnine poisoning. A few days later, Dr. Jordan was on a boat to Hawaii under the guise of retrieving Jane Stanford's body. In reality, he had much more sinister intentions. Once in Honolulu, he hired a doctor named Ernest Coniston Waterhouse to refute the poison ruling. Dr. Waterhouse didn't even look at the body, but he still released a four-page report about the cause of death and stated that Jane Stanford had actually died of heart failure. The Honolulu doctors and local press lashed out at Dr. Waterhouse's claim. Some suggested fraud and intentional sabotage of the murder investigation. Dr. Waterhouse specifically claimed the coronary trouble was due to overexertion and hysterical panic because Mrs. Stanford had eaten too many sandwiches and desserts earlier in the day. Meanwhile, David Starr Jordan used the Waterhouse report to spread a misinformation campaign in San Francisco, and perhaps to take advantage of Americans' bigoted beliefs. In 1905, Hawaii wasn't yet a state. Many Americans looked down upon Hawaii as a land of barbarians, savages, and immigrants. Dr. Jordan knew that people wouldn't trust a doctor in Hawaii over his own esteemed reputation. He even went so far as to accuse Dr. Humphreys, the man who tried to save Mrs. Stanford's life, of adding the poison to the water after Mrs. Stanford died. Excuse me, Dr. Jordan! Yes? I heard you call me barbaric at the press conference. Ah, you must be Dr. Humphreys. How dare you, sir? Your callous words may let a killer go free. There is no killer, Dr. Humphreys. It was heart failure. How do you explain the strychnine in the bicarbonate? Well, Dr. Humphreys, perhaps you put it there to cover up your abject failure as a doctor. You, you, sir. Must be leaving now. Good day. It was clear that David Starr Jordan was trying to hide the truth, but his motive was shrouded in mystery. Perhaps he was covering his own tracks. Or perhaps he was spreading misinformation for less dastardly reasons. After all, he was the president of a budding university. There had already been a number of faculty scandals and rumors that had tarnished Stanford University in its early days. Another headline might have been the straw that broke the camel's back. It's possible he was just trying to keep the doors of the school open. Regardless, Dr. Jordan couldn't have done the poisoning himself. He was in California at the time of the murder. His hands were clean, at least officially. And yet he wasn't the only possible suspect. The situation was suspicious enough on its own that the San Francisco Police Department sent an investigator to the island to figure out what was going on. 
When Detective Harry Reynolds arrived, he immediately set out to find answers to two questions. Was Jane Stanford murdered? And if so, by whom? First, Detective Reynolds began looking into the details surrounding the night of Mrs. Stanford's murder. Since the poison was allegedly found in her glass of bicarbonate soda, the person who poisoned Jane Stanford had to have been someone very close to her. Someone who had access to her medicine and who Mrs. Stanford trusted completely. Someone like her longtime personal secretary, Bertha Burner. I would never hurt Mrs. Stanford. For goodness sakes, I've been her secretary for almost 30 years now. That must have been difficult, though. I mean, waiting on her every whim and request for so long. Resentment only builds over time. It wasn't like that. Mrs. Stanford and I were friends. Best friends. The night of her death, we even stayed up and watched the moon rise over the Pacific Ocean. If it wasn't you, then who? If you ask me, I don't believe she was murdered at all. She wasn't feeling well earlier in the day. She was uncomfortable outside because of this chilly breeze, and she ate so much that day. Maybe it was all just too much for her to handle. Natural causes, huh? That sounds awfully convenient for you. But perhaps you can think of someone else who might have wanted to hurt Mrs. Stanford. Well, I suppose Mrs. Stanford's butler. Yes, now I remember. She had a Chinese butler. His name was Ah Wing. I was always very suspicious of his intentions. Ah Wing, you say? Ah Wing's name quickly made it into the tabloids all across the Bay Area. Soon, newspapers began blaming him for the murder, further fueling anti-Chinese racism in the process. Despite Ah Wing's public status as a suspect, there was no evidence that tied him to Jane Stanford's death. As a matter of fact, Mrs. Stanford seemed to have a very good relationship with Mr. Wing, as he had worked for the Stanfords for over 20 years. But the rumors and accusations followed him anyway, and Ah Wing struggled to find work that satisfied him. After briefly working at Stanford Museum, Ah Wing eventually decided to move back to China. With no evidence to tie Mr. Wing to the murder, and no apparent motive for Bertha Burner to have committed the crime, Detective Reynolds was forced to agree with David Starr Jordan. He ruled that no murder had taken place, and Jane Stanford had just died of heart failure. With that, Detective Reynolds left the Hawaiian island and set sail back to California. Since there was no murder, there would be no further investigation. At least, not for another 90 years. Coming up, we meet an amateur detective who decided to solve the mystery of Jane Stanford's murder nearly a century after her death. Hi, listeners, it's Carter. If you're looking for more extraordinary stories, the new Spotify original from Parcast explores daring achievements, death-defying stunts, and exploits that didn't quite make it into the history books. It's called Incredible Feats, and it's a daily show hosted by comedian Dan Cummins, who you might recognize from the hit podcast Time Suck. Every weekday, Dan shares the surprising details behind people's bravest, strangest, most boundary-pushing moments. 
like when Dan Carnassus ran 350 miles without stopping, or when Julianne Kopka survived 11 days alone in a rainforest when she was just 17 years old, or when Felix Baumgartner broke the sound barrier while skydiving from the edge of space. You'll hear wildly unexpected stories about everyone from freedivers and body modifiers to ultramarathoners and moms. Incredible Feats aims to amaze, so don't miss out. New episodes air Monday through Friday. Search Incredible Feats and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. After the brief investigation in 1905 and a few newspaper headlines, the Jane Stanford case faded into memory. For Stanford University, it was nothing more than a mysterious footnote tied to their inaugural president, David Starr Jordan. By the time Robert W.P. Cutler was born in New York, August 3, 1933, no one talked about the case at all. From a young age, Robert had a curious mind. Robert graduated from Harvard University in 1953 with an interest in medicine. He followed that interest to Tufts Medical School and after that to the Army as a medical officer. After coming back from the war, he came to be known for his work in neurology. Dr. Cutler specialized in Parkinson's disease and was a member of a few notable and prestigious neurology academies. Cutler first arrived at Stanford in 1974 as a professor of neurology Over the years, he became one of the most respected professors on campus, eventually rising to the esteemed position of Senior Associate Dean of Faculty Affairs at the Stanford University School of Medicine. After a long, illustrious career, Dr. Cutler retired in 2000. After his retirement, Dr. Cutler focused on writing. He published a book titled Tin Can that explored a box of old war letters his brother and he had discovered. Cutler's unending curiosity made him a successful author. That curiosity also led him to the story of Jane Stanford. While researching the history of magnesite mining for another book, he stumbled across a passage that alluded to Jane Stanford's murder. And then he kept reading. As a former Stanford professor, Cutler was shocked that the beginning of the university was embroiled in such controversy and that none of his old colleagues were even aware that it had happened. Now, you said you needed help with a murder investigation? Yes. The university's founder, Jane Stanford herself, was murdered in 1905. What? Really? By who? That's the thing. They never found out. It went unsolved and even uninvestigated. Stranger still. I think someone from the school might have covered it up. You sound completely crazy. You're serious. You're serious. Are you going to look into it? I don't know. I've never investigated a murder before. You say that as if you have something more interesting to do. He didn't. So Dr. Cutler decided to write a book which would finally reveal who murdered Jane Stanford And his first suspect was obvious, Dr. David Starr Jordan. Dr. Cutler began by diving deep into Stanford's vault of college history. 
he searched each relevant archive, sifting through hundreds of pages of correspondence between board members, trustees, and Jane Stanford herself. But he didn't find everything that he needed. For one, all of the police records from the case were gone, the files were destroyed, along with a good chunk of everything else in the city, during the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. Stanford University in nearby Palo Alto wasn't spared from the earthquake damage either. But luckily, Dr. Jordan spent much of that year and the years after trying to preserve and protect the Stanford archives. A century later, Dr. Cutler sifted through these same files to look for evidence that damned Dr. Jordan. While digging through the archives for any mention of Jane Stanford's death, Dr. Cutler ran into an old friend who we'll refer to as Professor Daniels for the sake of privacy. Daniels happened to be looking for the exact same article as Dr. Cutler, but not for the same reasons. Professor Daniels was looking into fired German professor Julius Goebel. Goebel was hired close to the founding of the university in 1892 as the head of the German department. At a time when most of the faculty was being hired by Jordan, Goebel appeared to be a rare hire by Jane Stanford herself. In David Starr Jordan's autobiography, he wrote very highly about a lot of the hires at the time, including English philology professor Ewald Flugel, another scholar from Germany. But he never said a word about Goebel himself. Dr. Jordan had brought many of his faculty recruits with him from Indiana University. Those professors had formed a tight-knit group of loyalists. Mrs. Stanford, on the other hand, had other professors she trusted in her board of trustees. As the university grew, the inner workings of the faculty became a mystery to her. But thanks to Professor Daniels, Dr. Cutler realized that Jane did have one spy inside Dr. Jordan's administration, Professor Goebel, and the two had left behind a long trail of correspondence. Dr. Cutler, with the help of Professor Daniels, uncovered Goebel's first reconnaissance mission, a faculty scandal that had mysteriously disappeared from the newspapers. The archive letters I was telling you about should be around here, Cutler. Uh, ah! Listen to this. Dear Mrs. Stanford, your high ideals of the university and your noble desire to realize them stand in strange contrast to the actual conditions existing here. Is he talking about David Starr Jordan? He seems to be talking about something called the Gilbert Affair. The Gilbert Affair? I haven't heard about that. It seems that's by design. It seems there was a scandal surrounding zoologist professor Charles Henry Gilbert. He was having an unsavory relationship with a young woman, but since Gilbert was a friend of Dr. Jordan's, Dr. Jordan was able to use his connections and influence to make the whole thing go away. Whitewashed, as Goebel puts it. Dr. Jordan covering things up again. Sorry. To Dr. Cutler, the Gilbert affair was much more than the gossip of a faculty scandal. It was evidence of David Starr Jordan's capacity for deception. Perhaps burying this faculty scandal is what gave Dr. Jordan the experience necessary to cover up Jane Stanford's murder. Dr. Cutler found a long history of correspondence between Jane Stanford and Julius Goebel. 
and it sounded like Goble was more than just a pair of ears for Mrs. Stanford, he may have passed messages for her as well. When Dr. Cutler found a letter from late 1904 between Goble and Horace Davis, a trustee and Jane Stanford loyalist, he knew he'd stumbled upon something big. In the letter, Goble wrote that Mrs. Stanford wanted to make a change at the university that would shake everything up. She intended on firing David Starr Jordan. It's unknown if David Starr Jordan knew about these plans, but one thing is abundantly clear. Dr. Jordan knew about Goebel's relationship with Jane. Three months after Jane Stanford's death in May 1905, David Starr Jordan fired Julius Goebel. He gave the board a vague reason for Professor Goebel's departure, saying it was because of Goebel's utter disregard for the rights of others in his personal and university relations. He also blamed Goebel for failing to return 674 library books. Not only had Dr. Cutler found what he considered David Starr Jordan's motive for wishing Jane dead, but he had also found the smoking gun. He had the answer to why, but more importantly, he had the answer to why then. Coming up... Dr. Cutler takes a harder look at Jane Stanford's first assassination attempt. And now, back to our story. In the early 2000s, retired professor turned amateur detective Dr. Robert Cutler broke new ground on a century-old case. Dr. Cutler approached the case with fresh eyes, armed with the revelation that David Starr Jordan was on the verge of being fired at the end of 1904. The timing fit perfectly. On January 14, 1905, just weeks after Professor Goebel gave Horace Davis the letter about Mrs. Stanford's intentions, an attempt was made on her life. This first incident was eerily similar to the incident that eventually killed Jane. While at home in her San Francisco mansion, Jane Stanford took a sip of Poland Spring water. But the water didn't taste right. It was oddly bitter. Mrs. Stanford knew something was wrong. She quickly spit the water out and made herself vomit. A toxicology report later confirmed that the water was laced with strychnine. If David Starr Jordan had covered up her murder, and he had covered up a faculty scandal a few years before, then maybe he tried to cover up the unsuccessful assassination of Jane Stanford in January as well. In his research, Dr. Cutler found something just a little strange. It seemed that after the incident at Stanford's Knob Hill Mansion, the university hired a private detective named Harry Morse to investigate the attempt on Mrs. Stanford's life. It's unclear just who at Stanford University made the hire, but it's very possible it was David Starr Jordan himself. But why would the noted enemy of the victim work so hard to look into her poisoning? Maybe, Cutler thought, Dr. Jordan put himself in the middle of the investigation so he could suppress certain pieces of information from coming to light. Morse was a storied lawman in private eye by the time he took a look into Jane Stanford's assassination attempt. He had been the sheriff of Alameda County from 1864 to 1878. A little digging into Morse yielded fascinating results. In the early 1880s, Morse had moved to San Francisco to start his own private eye investigative business. 
Morse investigated a series of frauds in the city that eventually led to the incrimination of the city's corrupt mayor, Andrew J. Bryant. The high-profile case gave Morse something of a reputation across San Francisco. But the investigation into Jane Stanford's murder attempt was his last. Dictation date, August 12, 2000. I'm looking at Detective Harry Morse case files from the January incident at the Knob Hill Mansions, and... That's strange. It seems as though after meeting with Jane Stanford's secretary, Bertha Burner, Detective Morse was convinced that no poisoning attempt took place. But that can't be. The pharmacy report specifically indicates that strychnine was present in Jane Stanford's water that day. What did Bertha tell him? Could she really be at the center of this? It turned out that Morse's investigation hinged entirely on Bertha's story. Since she also took a sip of the supposed poisoned water and survived, then Mrs. Stanford wasn't really in danger after all. The water must have been poisoned after she drank it, probably by a disgruntled employee who wanted to frame another worker. Jane Stanford fired a series of housemaids, butlers, and other workers that day. And with that, the case was closed and Mrs. Stanford headed to Hawaii. David Starr Jordan was more than happy to relay this information to the public, and he quickly shot down all rumors that Jane Stanford left town for her safety. There's absolutely no truth to it. San Francisco was cold, and Mrs. Stanford wanted to get away from things. It was for this reason alone that she started on her trip. She did not think for a minute that any attempt was being made to poison her. I do not believe there was either. It was clear to Dr. Cutler that Dr. Jordan had the motive and the experience covering up investigations to murder Jane Stanford and get away with it. But there was one glaring issue. Since Dr. Starr Jordan was in California when Mrs. Stanford died, he must have had an accomplice do the killing for him. There was only one person present for both poisonings. Jane Stanford's personal secretary, Bertha Burner. Bertha and Mrs. Stanford were very close and had been working together for more than 30 years, but perhaps something had driven a wedge between them. That's when Dr. Cutler came across Mrs. Stanford's will. In the case of Mrs. Stanford's death, Bertha was set to get $15,000. That's about $400,000 today, making the inheritance a potential motive. However, Dr. Cutler found a few issues with this theory. First, it didn't answer the question of timing. Whoever wanted Jane Stanford dead wanted her dead right away. They barely waited a month between assassination attempts. But if Bertha was doing it for money, there's no big rush. Jane Stanford was 76 at the time. All Bertha really had to do was wait a few more years until the woman died on her own. Bertha Burner didn't exactly need the money, either. The record showed that Bertha lived a lavish lifestyle and already owned a house in Palo Alto that Mrs. Stanford bought her. If Mrs. Stanford was already bankrolling Bertha, there was no reason to kill her for more money. Besides, it was a verified fact that Bertha cared for Jane Stanford. After Mrs. Stanford's death, Bertha even wrote a book detailing the wonderful relationship they had. Dr. Cutler was stuck. Bertha Burner had means and no motive, and Dr. Star Jordan had all the motive in the world but no means. 
The mystery drove Dr. Cutler into an obsession as he started staying up late, ranting to his wife and combing over the files from the Stanford Archive, looking for any clues he might have missed. <sighs> what am I missing? Bertha had no motive, and even Bertha's memoir mentions her time with Jane in Hawaii so fondly, staying up and watching the moon. Wait. Bertha clearly says that she remembers watching the moon rise with Jane on the evening of her death. Doesn't that seem strange, honey? Remember our trip to Hawaii? The moon didn't rise until very late in the night, almost morning time. Let's see. Yes, look at these astronomy charts. On February 28, 1905, the moon didn't rise until after 2 a.m. Bertha and Jane couldn't have watched the moon rise together. Jane was dead by 11.30. This is huge. Honey. Oh, sorry. I didn't realize you were asleep. Yes, I'm coming right to bed. Dr. Cutler began to comb over every detail Bertha had said about the night of Jane's death. Sure enough, he found more inconsistencies. Bertha had mentioned that she believed the cold weather in Hawaii played a factor in Jane's death mentioning a cold breeze that shook Mrs. Stanford to the core. But the weather that day was firmly in the 70s. Bertha was turning out to be an unreliable narrator, but perhaps her inconsistencies were really lies meant to throw the police off her scent. There was also the possibility that Bertha was working with David Starr Jordan. Perhaps Dr. Jordan had promised Bertha an even bigger payout for the deed. Unfortunately, if Bertha and Jordan conspired together, there is no evidence to prove it. There is no historical record of communication between Bertha Burner and David Starr Jordan, let alone proof that they planned a murder together. Cutler had made some important discoveries, but could not come to any definitive solution to the mystery. As Dr. Cutler wrote in his book, <sighs> If anyone wishes to draw such conclusions, they should have evidence to support them. I couldn't find any, so I will leave the reader to draw his or her own conclusions. Ultimately, Dr. Cutler dismissed Mrs. Berner's inconsistencies as simple problems of memory. Without proof that she committed the crime or at least helped Dr. Jordan, Cutler was lost. In 2003, Dr. Cutler published his book, titled The Mysterious Death of Jane Stanford, but it didn't come any closer to solving the actual mystery. Robert Cutler died a year later on April 12, 2004. With that, the mystery of Jane Stanford's unsolved murder no longer had a lead investigator. Since then, others have come along with claims of new information on the case, but most were conspiracy theorists. One theory states that the Stanfords were a part of a secret organization of America's most wealthy and powerful people, and Mrs. Stanford was murdered because of this. Unfortunately, the truth of what really happened that night likely died alongside Jane Stanford. Looking over everything, I think David Starr Jordan and Bertha Burner had to have worked together to kill Jane. Jordan wanted her out of the picture at Stanford, and Bertha wanted the money in her will. I'm not so sure. There wasn't enough money in that will to betray 30 years of friendship. I think Dr. Jordan worked alone. He likely hired someone in Hawaii to do the poisoning, the same way that he paid for the fake doctor's report. 
Regardless of who murdered Jane Stanford, her cover-up could have brought Stanford University down completely if it had been ruled a murder. The young college was already mired in small scandals, and the murder of its co-founder may have been a finishing blow. Dr. Jordan made sure the school survived. He led Stanford for another decade and died in 1931. Ultimately, Jane's death was likely a tragic tale of university politics turned deadly. And in this case, the wrong person won. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on the murder of Jane Stanford, amongst the many sources we used, we found the mysterious death of Jane Stanford by Robert Cutler extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Unsolved Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unsolved Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Frank Spiro, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Rebecca Thomas, Tom Bauer, K.G. Tang, and Joe Hernandez. It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Hi, listeners. Be sure to follow Incredible Feats for your daily dose of offbeat entertainment. Join comedian Dan Cummins every weekday as he shares unbelievable and true stories of physical strength, mental focus, and genuine bizarre behavior. Search Incredible Feats and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.